Good morning, South Hills. It's wonderful to have you here in the room. And for those of you who are joining us at home, uh, thank you for joining us. And let me take this opportunity also to say to dads, uh, happy Father's Day. We're so grateful that you're here and for uh, what you have done in the lives of uh, your families and this community. It's uh, a privilege to have you here. Could you take your Bibles, please, and uh, turn to uh, Luke chapter 2. And I'm going to reposition this uh, table because it's wor- I'm working off the wrong side. I just feel like I'm out of kilter with it over on this side with it. In uh, Luke chapter 2, we're going to continue our uh, study in the conversations uh, with uh, Jesus. Last uh, week, Jeff... Uh, took the conversation between Jesus and Thomas, and we looked at this whole idea of doubt. Today, on uh, Father's Day, we're going to look at the conversation that Jesus has with his parents when he's a middle schooler. Okay? He's 12 years old. I have never preached on this passage before. You know, looked at it, you know, read it, but I've never done a full message on uh, this passage. So it was fun preparing it and entitled it A Parent's Question. In 2018, Reader's Digest published a series of articles, a series of stories entitled True Stories That Show How Hilarious Parenting Can Be. Let me share two of them. The first one was entitled, At Least He Tried. Okay? So, the story goes like this. As educators, my husband and I encouraged our son, Kenny, to always do his best. So, Kenny's parents decided to take him to an art exhibit. And they went to see... Henri Matisse's work, Paper Cutouts Exhibit. Matisse, when he got older, wasn't painting, but began doing paper cutouts. You've uh, seen some of them. There's a a wonderful exhibit at the Tate Museum in uh, London of them. But it goes on tour, and so the parents thinking they want to expose their child, their son to uh, all that uh, culture has, take him to the exhibit. He studies the paper cutouts and then says to his father, well, at least he tried. <laughs> Can't you hear an eight-year-old saying that? And then the the second story that just I roared at when I read it, it's called Dropping the Ball. And a family's friend dies. And so they decide for the first time that they're going to expose their son to what it is to go to a memorial graveside service. He is fascinated by all that uh, takes place. Can't you see a little boy looking at a hole in the ground? And the casket and everything that goes on. 
at the end of the service, the uh, man who was uh, being remembered, his grandchildren gave everybody a golf ball. And instead of flowers, they were given the golf ball to drop into the casket. With the understanding that as you drop the golf ball in, you were to tell Bob stories. People started dropping their golf ball in and started telling stories about their friend. Now, if you've spent any time on a golf course with guys, you know tall stories get told. And people started telling their tall stories about Bob as they remembered him. It was a very meaningful time to the family. And after the family of the little boy had dropped their golf balls in, the little boy in his loudest outdoor voice says, Mom, aren't you grateful that he wasn't a bowler? Kids say the darndest things. <laughs> growing up's hard work, isn't it? And growing children up is challenging work. But ultimately, growing up means that you find a new home, doesn't it? Because you leave your parents' home and you establish your own home. And that finding a new home involves geography, it involves psychology, and it involves spirituality. In this text this morning, we're introduced to Jesus on his journey of leaving one home and establishing his own home. He's 12. He's in those tween years. But what makes 12 so uh, challenging in the Jewish economy is that at 13, you're regarded as an adult. That's why you have a bar mitzvah at 13. Now, that comes later in in Jewish uh, celebrations. But when Jesus would turn 13, he would be regarded as an adult in his community and would be treated. Now, could you imagine treating a 13-year-old as an adult in our economy? Some parents here are going, no! Do you ever wonder what Jesus was like as a kid? Could you imagine being Jesus' brother? Today we're going to look at one story where Jesus gave his parents fits. You go, you can't say that, Paul. But just think about that story. If you're a parent, doesn't this Jesus give you fits? 
In fact, three days of your life are lost because of this kid in this story. Every year, verse 41 of Luke 2, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends, and when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And Jesus says, Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Jerusalem, to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This text opens with a pilgrimage. And it involves parents who do all the right things for their son. Jesus had the advantage of being raised in a, in a family of faith, in a family of piety. Think about what Luke does in his uh, narrative here. He's told us previously that when Jesus is eight days old, he's taken to be circumcised. When he's 40 days old, he's dedicated in the temple. Every year, according to this text, his family makes the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Nazareth to Jerusalem is about 60 miles. Three days walking. To, to think about that, on Friday and Saturday, I did 52 miles walking. Just to think about what that would feel like on the feet. In the ancient world, you figured on about 20 miles a day. Six, three miles an hour, a little over six hours, maybe seven hours. Then you stop for whatever, water or any food. It's, it's a day's journey. Jewish law required that uh, if you lived within 20 miles 
of Jerusalem, you made the pilgrimage every year. Living in Nazareth, you were well outside of those boundaries. So this is a pious family. Mary and Joseph are trying to do everything they can to raise up their boy in this godly heritage. At 12, he would have been encouraged to start fasting. At least for a day. At age 12, his words and he vows he's made were considered as binding on him. If he messed up, parents were empowered by the synagogue for their discipline to be a little more severe than it was before that point. Imagine a boy from the rural area of Nazareth in the big city of Jerusalem. Every year he visited, the city got bigger and grander. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, the old city, it's winding narrow streets. It's easy to get lost there. The few times I've been to the Holy Land and when we stay in Jerusalem, at nights I go and wander those streets of the old city. It's, it's fascinating. And I could see a little boy starting at six and now, you know, as a, a middle schooler, his eyes just getting bigger as the world opens up to him. See, you've got to remember that Jesus grew like any other child. He grew in stature. He grew physically. He grew mentally. You say, but he's God. Yeah, he is God and man. He's the God-man. But Scripture tells us at least twice in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 2, that he grew. Verse 40 says, There the child grew up healthy and strong. He was filled with wisdom beyond his years, and God placed his special favor on him. And then in verse 52 of this chapter, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So there's this growth curve for him. The Passover lasted seven days in Jerusalem. Some of you say, well, I've seen on the internet eight days. That was if you're outside the land that developed later. If you're in the land, it was seven-day celebration. Jesus' family probably stayed for the whole time. They're only obligated to stay two days. This is a family that does all the right things. And so they stay. 
And when it's time to leave, there's a problem. Because Jesus goes A-W-O-L. He just does. And after the festival was over, after the seven days, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Now, some of you are saying, as mothers, how could Mary not know where he was? Some of you who've grown up in big families know exactly how that could happen. I have a friend, Dolly. Dolly is in her 80s. She is one of 13 kids. Five sets of twins. Okay? Her twin and her parents rhyme their names. So her twin is Molly. Dolly and Molly. They lived in a three-bedroom, two-bath house in the Central Valley of California. When Dolly tells me her family stories, this makes total sense to me. Because when you come from a large family, you just figure one of the other kids is looking after. You also got to remember that when you made the pilgrimage, you did it in a caravan with friends and family. Now, this is Jesus, so this isn't a rascal. This isn't somebody you've got to keep on a short leash. Mary just assumes he's with the other kids in the caravan or with the other rallies. That's an Australian abbreviation for relatives with it. She just assumes that. And then comes the crisis point. They get to the end of the day. It's probably supper time. Where's the boy? He's a 12-year-old boy. He's going to be hungry. And then the panic sets in. They're 20 miles out of Jerusalem going north. Can you imagine what dad says about the return trip? Mata, mata. Mommies, you know what it is when you can't find your son in the grocery store or at the park. We had a son who delighted in terrorizing his mother in clothing stores. You know the big round racks? He would go and hide underneath there in a place where you, you can't see because of the way the clothes fall. And he'd watch his mother panic. And then eventually emerge with a smile on his face. Oh, I wanted to remove that smile from his face. <laughs> Now, I'm not saying Jesus did that, but you 
know the feeling that a parent would have had. And so, they're 20 miles to the north, day out, 20 miles the next day into the city, and then the search begins. That's why the accounting in the text says three days. Day up, day back, a day looking. They've searched through the maze. Why did they go to the temple? Did they go to pray because they hadn't found him anywhere else? It's sure apparent that they didn't know he'd be there. And then there's this discovery. After three days, they find him in the temple courts. And he's sitting amongst the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Rabbinic teaching asked questions. Let the students ask questions, and then the rabbis responded to the questions. That was one of the typical ways that discussion would have occurred. And so here they said they found him in the court sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. The student would ask the question, the rabbi would respond, which would trigger other questions and other response. It was this wonderful dialogue that took place. Sometimes you hear this passage explained as if Jesus was teaching the rabbis. You take a look at it again, that's not what's happening. He's at their feet, he's listening, he's asking questions, he's responding to some things. But the focus isn't Jesus there with everybody in awe at him teaching or giving a message at 12. Jewish education went something like this. Between the ages of 5 and 10, you went to synagogue school every day. What was your subject? Torah. You learned the first five books of the Bible. You, You were asked questions about passages, and you memorized the passage, and you said it back. Between 5 and 10, most Jewish children would have understood the first five books of the Bible. Isn't that amazing? That was their curriculum. From 10 to 12, they then looked at the poetry and the prophets, and they also looked at the Mishnah, the 613 rules or laws that were associated with the Ten Commandments. Jesus later uses that when he says, you have heard it said, but I tell you, that was in response to Mishnah. 
If you were 13, you might have gone to boarding school in Jerusalem. We know of one person who did that. The Apostle Paul went to boarding school. He sat at Gamaliel's feet. Paul and Jesus are a similar age. We don't know if if Paul was in the uh, temple that day. Could have been. They're not the exact same age. But Paul certainly had the privilege of that. Jesus coming from a poorer family probably didn't didn't have that opportunity because we know he goes back to Nazareth. And he's obedient to his parents until he comes out into his ministry at age 30. But he's there. And he's growing. Is it that mom and dad couldn't answer all of his questions? Possibly. Is it possible that the rabbi in Nazareth couldn't answer all of his questions? Possibly. He needed some new discovery. We all know that. The old African proverb's true. It takes a village to raise a child, doesn't it? Now, some of you don't like that saying because Hillary said it. But I want to tell you, she isn't the author of it. It's a proverb that in African villages has been taught for years and years and years. And it's true. That's why you come to church if you've got children. Because you're not saying, I can do it all. I need other people. That's why we have youth ministry, isn't it? That's why we have children's ministry. Because we need other people's input as well as our own. I got an idea that what Jesus was doing there, he was gleaning from other rabbis about what they were saying. Questions were asked and answered. And we know that he grew in wisdom and stature. He was learning. Learning. And so, that's the discovery. Now we get to the conversation. And it's not a conversation like this, around a table over a coffee. We're going to see some of those in the study over the summer. But this is a very different conversation. When Jesus' parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Mary was amazed, astounded, overwhelmed, dumbfounded. That's all the idea of those Greek words. But once she saw her boy was safe, 
she went into mother mode. Why have you treated us like this? What's she saying here? Well, she's expressing her pain. I've been worrying about you for three days. Can you imagine what's going through a mother's and father's mind as they walk those 20 miles back? Their worst fears. So he can't have been carted off on another caravan? Did he join the wrong caravan? Where is he? All of that going on. There's distress. How could he do this to us? How could he show such disregard? And then a good bit of Jewish shame. How could you treat us like this? And what does Jesus say back? Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? They didn't understand what he said, what he was saying to them. Is that a rebuke by Jesus or is it surprise? I don't think it's rebuke. I think it's genuine, naive surprise. You had to know where I'd be. Didn't you? Remember all that's been said to you? Remember Gabriel? Remember Elizabeth? Remember Anna and Simeon? Remember the shepherds? Remember all those conversations? Weren't you putting them together? You can hear that as rebuke. I think it's surprise. You just didn't. And can't you hear hear you, young man, after all we've been through with you, that birth in the manger, that donkey ride, We lived as refugees for a couple of years in Egypt. How could you do that to me? Your father and I. How many times have you heard that one? At our house, when my mother said that, I knew I was in trouble. That was a dead giveaway. And he's just saying, don't you know I had to be in my father's house? Where else would I be? Where else would I be? Now, there's an interesting Greek word here. In verse 49, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know, and then it's this expression that the NIV translates, I had to be. It's a little word in Greek, di. D-E-I. On nine occasions in Luke's gospel, it's used about Jesus and his mission. It's 
a missional word in Luke. And it has to do with him being about his father's business, being in his father's house, about him going to the cross to die in our place. Luke uses this word very intentionally to convey the gospel to us. Because Jesus at 12 starts to declare his mission. At 12, he knows what he's got to do. How's that happened? He's, been, he's grown up in a pious family. He's gone to synagogue school. He knows the text. But he's also the son of the living God. And there's a play in this text between this idea of your father and my father. Mary says to him, your father and I. And Jesus says to her, my father. He knows who his real dad is. It's not that there's a disregard to his human father. But he knows that he's the son of the living God. And there's this play in this conversation. And he knows in the conflict between his human father and his heavenly father that his heavenly father is going to win every time. Discipleship is about aligning with your heavenly father. It's about his kingdom and his business. And at 12, he makes that declaration in the conversation. He's prioritizing the kingdom in all of its power and all of its glory. And he says it to his mom. And verse 50, and they didn't understand what he was saying. Mary's, in verse 19 of chapter 2, has pondered these things after the shepherds come to talk to her. She's going to spend her life pondering the words of her son. At this point, the penny hasn't tumbled. You see, the penny sometimes doesn't tumble for some people easily. takes a while. Mum doesn't quite understand here. But look what he does. Then he went down to Nazareth. Here's the resolution. He went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor of God and man. What must it have been to be God the Son and be in submission, in obedience to your mum? 
and dead. There's no pride here. He places himself under their authority. And he's under their authority until he embarks on his uh, ministry as a 30-year-old man. Because the law is important to him. He will honor his father and mother, even though he's the author of the law. He doesn't exempt himself from it. It's really interesting that Luke spells that out. He was obedient to them. And Luke, and Luke writes something in, in which he invites us to be like Mary. He wants us to ponder these things about Jesus, to spend the rest of our lives thinking about them, exploring them, seeking to understand them. And Mary gets to watch this 12-year-old grow into a man at 30 and see how he grows in his relationship to God and to others, how he grows in his own wisdom and who he becomes as a man physically and, and mentally. A powerful passage. Jesus, though, now becomes the active agent. Up to this point in the gospel narratives, Jesus has not been the active agent. But starting here, he becomes the active agent. This is the only story we have of his boyhood. Or of those 30 years. And he becomes the active agent. And Mary becomes the bridge to the whole story. It starts with her with the angelic announcement. And when you get to Luke chapter 1, she's in the story at his ascension. The invitation is to ponder his life like Mary had to ponder his life as she watched it. And she had a front row seat. What must it have been like to raise the Son of God? To be entrusted with that. And by the way, Joseph isn't mentioned in the narrative again. Sound familiar, Dad? Fathers are often quiet participants in this. It's interesting what happens here. You see, if you really want to put it in one sentence, Jesus puts the Father at the center of his world and he asks us to do the same. That's what he's asking you. That's what he's asking me. To put the Father at the center of my life. The Father in his kingdom. He's asking me to do that. Not my family, not my career, not my friends. God the Father and his kingdom and his will. And that's what's asked in the story. 
Mom was sitting at the table. Don't you understand? I have to be about the father's business. Just had to. And as wonderful as that can be, that also can break a parent's heart. I broke my parent's heart when I never came home. I didn't understand all of that until my kids went away. And then I understood. It was right. You see, Jesus puts the Father at the center and he invites us to do the same. If you put Jesus at the center of your life, if you put God the Father at the center of your life, that's the invitation. That's the conversation. Let me tell you, if you do, it's going to be a wild ride. But man, is it worth it. Man, is it worth it. You see, authentic growth always involves letting go. Parenting is always about letting go. Mary and Joseph's move to the father's house meant they had to let go of their boy. And they had to strive to be like him, not him like them. Isn't that a reversal? It's powerful. This is a wonderful story. Seems only appropriate for Father's Day, doesn't it? To make the Father the center of your world. If you've done that, wonderful. If you haven't, I invite you to consider the claims of Jesus and make him the Savior and Lord of your life. Let's pray. Father, in the quietness and the stillness of these moments, as we, like Mary, let your word flood over us and we ponder it. Lord, if there's someone here this morning who doesn't know you, may they come to a saving knowledge of yourself this day. Or at least be considering your claims. Spirit of the living God, draw them to yourself. And for those of us who know you, may we be people who are always and continually, daily, putting you at the center of our lives. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in our lives as it is in heaven. Hear our prayer, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.